welcome to sun talk the sun talkers around the table today discuss the confluence of opposites we'll think about the coming together of opposites in a variety of domains is the world fundamentally made by pairs of opposites what does it mean to be the opposite what kinds of dissimilarities can coexist what is held taboo what is neutral how do opposite or complementary structures enable reactions is democracy a battle of opposites or options does the mirror image always exist in another dimension how is power produced in various kinds of systems what is the very long term future of our understanding of opposites and will change happen in a new way in the future We are pleased and privileged to have three sin talkers with us here today. Professor Konkan Bhattacharya, he is a physical chemist who works on the borders of chemistry and biology. He spent 30 years at ISCS Calcutta and is now at ISR Bhopal. Dr. Ananya Chakravarti, she is a comparative early modern historian. She teaches at Georgetown University. And Professor Neeraj Gopal Jayal, she is a political scientist and teaches at JNU New Delhi. Um so Ananya, why don't we set the ball rolling with you um with wherever you might want to take us uh, to we start beginning to think about this question of opposites in a semi concrete semi abstract place and what does the notion of opposite mean to you how does one start um interrogating that or thinking about that um you know you you obviously thought of various religious encounters i know the re- notion of religion itself is a little complex and uh, vexed but maybe we start somewhere there and we'll see where we land up So the first thing that I thought about when I saw your description for this uh for the session was a old idea in religious studies called the conjunction of opposites which is apparently a way to characterize indic ritual thinking but also in some ways to think about um how to how to characterize certain philosophical options that existed in India which uh are not in the west but I think I I would like to begin by sort of thinking about the epistemologies within which we embed the notion of opposites and how contextual and cultural they are. So for example, what is held opposite or a logical paradox within western thought we've shown in many different cultures that that is not necessarily how those two options would be con- constructed. So you mean the paradoxes of themselves don't exist or they're not perceived as being so. Or that they're that they're culturally contingent. So I'll give you one concrete example. So in the early modern period where when which I study there was a huge amount of anxiety about the sin of hypocrisy in Europe with the breaking up of the church and the whole issue of people pretending to be the religion of their king in in early modern Europe. And so when Francis Xavier the Jesuit 
priest um, comes to India, he's very concerned with hypocrisy or the sin of Nicodemism, of pretense. And so he meets a Brahmin in Tamil Nadu. And the Brahmin is very intrigued by this foreign teacher. And he tells him, yes, yes, I completely buy your philosophy, your theology, everything you've told me about this Christian God. And I'm following you in my heart, but I will continue to be a Brahmin in my everyday life. Mm-hmm. Now, for Xavier, this was rank hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. But for the Brahmin, it wasn't because there is... You mean the is, beliefs and rituals should, mat- should match and so on. Right, be, but, but yeah. there is no, actually, there is there is no logical interdependence between practice and belief, which is where the <laughs> Brahmin's point of view came from. So what is the problem in completely buying and believing Christian theology and then continuing to do the, het- the orthopraxis of Brahminism? So that's just one example of what uh, Xavier constructed as a paradox or worse, a sin of hypocrisy. But for the Brahmin was a perfectly logical... <laughs> set of cosmological options. Did it ha- happen the other way around as well? I Yes. Um, and so there are sort of interesting examples where um, uh, the Jesuits who I study in particular, they adapted to other cultures. And, um, and so eventually, for example, they um, accommodated caste, which in many ways I think is one of the reasons why Catholicism in India still looks the way it does compared to other places. And their argument at the time was that caste is not incompatible with Christian theology uh, because it is a form of social or cultural power and not a religious thing. So a form of nobility or not? A form of nobility was one of the ways that these early Jesuits caste it. So, so your point is that despite, uh, let's say in brackets, religious conversion, the, the caste structures would just continue? They, they, have- they, they pretty much accommodated it. And more than that, they sort of overlooked the deeply egalitarian nature of Christian theology. So you, you could say caste is in many ways very much opposite to Christian theology. And yet, this now, now was that done in, in in one stray incident somewhere, or that was kind of sanctioned by Vatican or no? Rome or it was a series of ongoing debates starting in the 17th century. Um, so when you say incorporated, this is like uh, almost technically incorporated into the way it was. It was accommodated, would I guess be the technical term. Sure, um, sure. And you know, there was a series of back and forth disagreements between various priests who were in India. Um, both in Tamil Nadu and even in you know Goa, other areas. But I think that that's a clear example of the opposite process, right? Of not of um, rejecting Indian practices, but rather of accommodating them, even though they are, I would say, theologically opposed to Christian uh, values. And what was the argument for why it was allowed to be accommodated? Now. Um, there must have been a formal kind of argument made, right? It, I mean, of course, there's adaptation and so on, but... So the earliest argument was made by this uh, Jesuit called, Italian Jesuit called Roberto Nobili. And his argument was essentially a very interesting early distinction between religion and culture. Mm-hmm. And he then designated certain aspects of Indian practice. So where are we now? Which which years are we in? In the early 17th century. Right. And he, he designated certain aspects of Indian practice as cultural as opposed to religious. 
And by making that distinction, he could say that, you know, accommodating to a whole bunch of Brahminical practices was legitimate within Christian, um, within Christianity itself. And this included things like uh, allowing the punul, the, the uh, head tuft for Brahmins right. and for retaining various um, marks and of, of Brahminism for Brahmin converts. Um, and and there was lots of pushbacks and there was a whole series of debates that continue, continued into what became the Malabar rights controversy. And was was uh, was cultural some kind of a synonym for superficial? Or? No, I think I think it was an early it was an early attempt to make a, make a distinction that we now live with. And, right. and as a scholar of religion and culture, it, I know for a fact that it's almost impossible to kind of make those hard and fast distinctions. And right. In fact, in the early modern period, um, what we think of as sort of this idea that religion exists in a separate domain from other aspects of life was simply not true. And actually, I think it's still simply not true for a lot of people in their lived experience. And so what we think of as secularization, particularly in a context like India, is by no means something that I see as a hallmark of the modern. What does this notion mean to you, Neeraja, the, the, this whole business of opposites? What comes to mind? So... Um, I think the first thing that that troubles me is how do we think about both the idea of opposites as well as the idea of confluence. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I I think the idea of confluence. So Ananya rightly used the word accommodation, uh, accommodation, assimilation. Uh, but of course, we know that etymologically, um, the word comes from the Latin root to flow. Right. Uh, and to flow together, so to speak, like rivers do, the confluence of rivers. Um, uh, you know, so what exactly is confluence? Is it, uh, is it accommodation, assimilation? Is it the swallowing up by, of, of one by the other? Uh, and, and is it, you know, ultimately should the confluence be defined by the outcome or by the process itself? By the nature of the process. By the nature and the terms of the of the incorporation, accommodation, assimilation, whatever it might be. And are all of these, in a sense, synonymous with confluence or are, are each of them distinct? So what, uh, what, mean, what happens in political processes? So uh, political processes I will come to in a bit, but let me, let me reflect for a minute on the idea of opposites. Sure. Uh, and I was uh, sort of uh, inspired in that by what Ananya just said about theological opposition between Brahmanism, let us say, and uh, Catholicism uh, of a certain kind. Um, But she also made reference to how lived cultural practices were accommodated. So what what is actually happening, I take it, is not that there are theological accommodations taking place, but the accommodations that are taking place are at the level of lived cultural practice, of everyday cultural practice. So that distinction that you just made, I thought was fascinating, between religion and culture, religion stays more or less uh, untouched, uncontaminated by the changes that may occur at the level of everyday lived cultural practice. Is this simultaneous so, with the process of defining what religion itself is as well? Because, I mean, because we, we, uh, today, in sitting where we are, we're treating them as separate categories, but maybe it wasn't so three, four hundred years ago. You know, I in my own work, I generally prefer not to use the term religion 
um, and I prefer to use the term cosmology because cosmology has far less of a Eurocentric um, assumption behind it. And there's a very particular history to the word religion. Uh, the scholar Jay-Z Smith has this wonderful little article, Religion, Religions, Religious, where he kind of lays out the ways in which the notion of religion as a category really emerges from that early encounter between Europeans and uh, Latin America and and these missionary encounters in general. Interesting. And, and, and you what, find this distinction helpful, Nireja? Well, this I, to culture, me, to religion? me, I find that we, we need to be... I would like us to be more precise uh, in making a distinction between what what is an opposite, what constitutes a pair of opposites, a set of opposites, mm. as opposed to things that are just different from each other. Yeah, dissimilar is different from I think opposite. Dissimilar and different are, are not necessarily opposites. Opposite. So, what right? is opposite so for you? For, uh, so, you asked me about politics, freedom and unfreedom. Those uh, are opposites. Yes. Justice and injustice. Those are opposites. But to me, religion and culture is not a sphere of opposites. Right. It's a sphere of dissimilarities, the, the diversities, domains. and so yeah. on. You could still have clashes between them, but those clashes don't necessarily mean that they are opposites. Right? Um, I think that would depend a lot on the content. So, for instance, if there were two competing theologies, I mean, within Christianity, you would have mm, opposing schools of thought as you would presumably within any religious uh, tradition, opposing schools of thoughts which would differ on the theological principles, but then there might still be a bedrock of commonality or similarity. Uh, one would need to think through that. But like I said, to me, freedom, unfreedom, justice, injustice, those are oppositional categories more than religion and culture. I'm not sure that I would look at those. So, um, you know, you mentioned purity and pollution at some point. Yes, I think purity and pollution are uh, could be treated as oppositional categories. Uh, but but when you think about transgressions of that divide, uh, individual transgressions or collective, in the case of, you know, uh, Dalrymple's white moguls, for instance, those kinds of, right. what is a mlecha, right. right? When you think of those kinds of transgressions, uh, then you wonder, you know, in, in a social imagination or in a society's imagination, that divide may remain entrenched and oppositional even while the transgressions take place. But the transgressions are marginal to the deeply entrenched divide between purity and pollution. But I would distinguish between that and conversion, which Ananya just mentioned, because conversion to me is a switch. Right. It's not that you're, you know, the two things are coming together. It is that you were one and now you, are, you, you belong to one faith one day and the next day you belong to another faith. You avow another faith. Right. You give up the first Right. But it's not a confluence of opposites uh, right. to me. Fair enough. Are there confluence of opposites within within the political realms? There are. Such as what? Um, you know, the kinds of things that uh, even political philosophers talked about. I mm -hmm. mean, uh, between, but, but let's talk about political regimes, which is, I think, very contemporary and of great concern. Uh, democracy and authoritarianism. Democracy and authoritarianism are directly opposed to each other. So it would be somewhat like freedom and unfreedom in a, in a sense. Yes, but except that we are seeing it play out in ways in which democracy today... Could lead to... No, today democracy accommodates authoritarian elements and right-wing right populist politics across the world today is showing us how you have the shell of democracy, but the substantive 
content of that is actually authoritarian, right? Um, you also have authoritarian states and polities today which are uh, mimicking democracies by holding elections, by having more than one party. By practicing the rituals. Mm. By practicing the rituals. rituals. Well, even more than so, there's yeah. the historical examples for, so for example, um, in the early 20th century, one of the, uh, in the Porfiriato in Mexico, uh, General Porfirio would actually hold elections as a way to see which of the local regional strongmen were actually uh, were power to enough, <laughs> powerful enough to win the election, so right. that it, the so that the the whole point of it was a process of, quite identified. Of, in in, in today's context, it's also a process of acquiring legitimacy. Right, you gain legitimacy in the context of the world, in the community of nations, as they say. Uh, you gain legitimacy by coming to power uh, through elections. Yeah, uh, you know. How substantive that democracy, those kinds of democracies are, is of course another matter. Yeah. Over to your world, Konkan. Now, obviously, your world is very different to this. Um, what is the notion of opposite steel? I mean, obviously, there are all kinds of lazy distinctions one can think of: assets base, positive, negative, um, and so on. Um, what What is the most fundamental distinction that you would make if, if one thinks about this category? As a mundane politics. I think opposite is what balances the opposite force. Different things do not balance each other. Apples cannot balance oranges. And uh, normally in mechanical world, if you have a two-pan balance, if you have weight in one balance, one pan, it will be tilted. But you have to have an exact opposite in the other thing. Then there will be balance. So balance is important. And if you have balance, then as Nidajaji said, we can flow together, we can go in a coherent manner. And in scientific world, as you mentioned, acids and bases. We suffer from acidity, some, the doctor gives some alkaline and base. And our body is perfectly kind of neutral. We are almost uh, slight, very slightly basic. We have almost equal amount of acid and base present. And you know, the whole world, uh, all scientific world is actually governed by simple principles, like repels, opposite attracts. That is the simple thing we uh, apply in all branches of science. Is there, is there, is there a why answer to that? Yeah, because uh, suppose we have electric charge, positive and negative, positive repels positive, negative repels negative, but positive and negative attracts. And if you have a opposite mean, it will have to be exactly opposite. Like we have of, often struggle with Jack and plug. You see that the American plugs don't fit fit in Indian jacks. So you should have a perfectly opposite. And when you open this lock and key, all keys are not will not fit on the uh, every lock. So opposite means when they will the lock will fit into every groove of the key and vice versa. So here your this is more a notion of complementarity. Complementarity and. That is what I'm saying. The complementarity balances and they, that results in doing something together. If a lock, if a key fits a lock, then only the lock will open. If it does not fit, in our biological term we say we have enzymes. But not all enzymes are useful for all reactions. We say there is a lock and key relation between every enzyme with the substrate on which it works. And, and and you mean that in a strict sense? Yes, yes. A very strict. It has to be very, very strict. The f 
like the two pieces in a jigsaw puzzle. They have to fix exactly. Like uh, and and this holds for all enzyme reactions. They, yes, yes, the binding yes, sites yes. and they all they almost always have lock key complementarity. Yes, yes, and this is why the 1902 Nobel Prize was given to a person called Emil Fischer, who first proposed that every enzyme and the substrate has a lock and key relation. And like, does this hold for all kinds of reactions, or this is only for living systems? For enzyme reactions and for all living enzyme, systems. Whatever enzyme works, enzyme works in living reactions, living things. Like in our biology, we see that proteins, we all, we all have proteins. But protein can have large different shapes. But only one shape is useful for biological action. Because, uh, but now how protein as, uh, takes up this particular shape? The reason is, water is not a um, perfectly neutral thing. Water has a negative part at a positive part. Negative means oxygen of water is slightly negative or hydrogen is slightly positive. And every protein has some negative, some positive part. The negative part of water uh, water will attract the positive part of the protein. Negative uh, Positive part of water will attract the negative part of the protein. And protein also has some part which does not have a charge. So they will try to avoid water. They will huddle. They will bury that portions. And that keeps a very interesting shape. And the proteins exactly know very well. If you fill up your body with alcohol, you will not survive. So water is very important. And you know that many things, we make a lot of solutions with water. You put sugar, it dissolves. It put um, salt, it dissolves. But if you try to dissolve some paraffin wax, it will not dissolve in water. For paraffin, you need different kinds of solvent. So... So you what see, is fundamental here? So probably at the level of mechanisms and at the level of the process, is it all shape and morphology dependent? We say so shape, when something fits, morphology, shape is sometimes important, charge is sometimes important. And some, sometimes we have... But are, these, are charge and shape uh, in a way manifestations of each other? No, no. Something you, you maybe, think they're different domains. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes we have a positive charge surrounded by a big crowd of neutral things. So a negative thing attracts the positive part, but it cannot go because there is a lot of crowd which prevents it. And uh, is, is there is there is there a notion of I, mean, I think he's used the word neutral. Is there a way of thinking about that? Because in all kinds of processes, now obviously you say you know, there's for or against and this and that. Is there a way of thinking about the unaffiliated neutral mass and bits? In in social contexts, neutral usually means on the side of power. So it's very difficult to say something is neutral. You and would agree with that, Nuraja? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I I think in social contexts, the notion of neutrality is is a tricky one. I think there is an interesting way of thinking about spaces that can be created away from extremes, however. So, for example, um, the economist Glenn Whale, uh, who I work with as part of this foundation that we run called Radical Exchange, he has come up with a mechanism called quadratic voting, in which instead of assigning each person just one vote, what happens is you give people baskets of votes. And in fact, you can vary it so that, you know, say you're a member of an underrepresented minority, you can actually have a larger basket of votes than others. 
And what we found in both experimental conditions and now in live experimentation, so we've done it with the Colorado State Legislature, is that quadratic voting is much better at revealing preferences, strong preferences among people, but also reducing extremism. No, but is, uh, is does this go against the notion of equality? Because I know this is different from one person, one vote, right? No, so basically what would... Would a political theorist like you be okay with? Uh, no, obviously one can run so any kind of structure. the way that it works is essentially that you, you get to assign your tokens between a set of options mm-hmm. and the cost goes up to vote for the same thing quadratically. So right. say you are a very motivated voter on one issue. Right. If you have 100 tokens, you can still only put 10 votes on that one issue because the cost of that vote has gone up quadratically. So some kind of a voting system. So where, it's a voting yeah. system but which reduces extremism. And what it turns out is that actually people who are in, you know, outside of this mechanism might come off as being, you know, very extreme. Say, you know, in the US, yeah. You'll hear people say, I'm a single-issue voter. I only care about the Second Amendment. Right. The truth is, and you actually give them a set of options, right. they care about more than just guns. Right. And, right. But what ends they up... They wouldn't use all their 100 points only on that one issue. Exactly. So. And it's a way it's a to... revealed preference. It's, you reveal preferences that actually show that people are less extreme than even their own description of themselves. Are there similar tricks in, the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in your world? Yeah, actually... Neutral does not mean inert. Neutral means you do two opposite things rightly. Mm-hmm. So entire our chemistry is we do two opposite things. Like sometimes we say, uh, if you take an example of a metal, like uh, if you take iron and if you take oxygen or cyanide, oxygen binds with iron because iron has, is we say, deficient in electron. It is electron acceptor and oxygen is electron donor. So that is why if you, in our hemoglobin there is iron that su- supplies oxygen to all parts of our body. But if cyanide enters your body, you die. Why you die? Because cyanide has a better binding with iron. So if cyanide goes, it will remove all the oxygen, we will die. So neutral does not mean uh, it is uh, inert. So therefore, I think neutral is, in a political language, you can say, suppose it is neutral for all, gender neutrality, caste neutrality, class. If you say that classless society is a neutral thing. So if finally, I think the final equilibrium state of this world will be when everything is neutral, all opposing forces as balanced with each other. Is there, uh, uh, maybe I want to ask you this question. Can I comment on this? Yes, of course. Yeah, because I, you know, uh, in a sense, uh, the idea of state neutrality in liberalism has been the uh, justification for uh, difference-blind policies, ostensibly treating all citizens as equal, uh, not recognizing differences, and arguments for affirmative action, uh, therefore, have had to demand that the state recognize difference and not be blind to difference and not be neutral. Even as it, you know, ensures and guarantees equality for citizens, it must do that little extra for some on grounds of difference. So the difference, the recognition of difference cannot happen if there is neutrality, if there is perfect neutrality. And yeah. But the argument for affirmative action would be on the grounds of fairness? 
or on the grounds of fairness right on the grounds of yeah absolutely for making up for disadvantages compensating for disadvantage do you think that political processes um, somewhat metaphysically speaking have a tendency to go towards extremes does it lead to schisms does it lead to um, extremism no on the contrary you see many more uh, examples and illustrations of uh, what we've been calling accommodations mm-hmm. um in uh, forms of social and economic organization in forms of political organization so when i spoke about democracy and authoritarianism uh, that is a form of cohabitation that i think is deeply suspect i think it i think <laughs> it does violence to the idea mm-hmm. of democracy so incorporating authoritarian elements is a very bad idea makes democracy itself suspect is, makes the is, claim of democracy suspect is there However, an answer to the why question yeah, no, of why so, it so, happens no so yeah. let, let me yeah. sort of finish answering the first question right um so <laughs> in forms of social and economic organization which are also of course political choices that societies make um we have uh, you know we have a slightly different uh, kind of a, a different uh, scenario from the one for instance that concord made uh you know so i think the natural world and the social world are quite distinct in this respect so if you think about for instance elements of capitalism and socialism okay opposed systems um and what they and in ways in which they may have been brought together historically uh, in societies that we are familiar with over the last 100 years okay um if you think about the 1980s and 90s the neoliberal turn uh you realize that you know the the emphasis the shift away from the state as the provider of uh, social security and welfare to citizens um to the market uh, yeah to the market but or the introduction of market principles through this ideology called new public management mm-hmm. which became very you know which came from new zealand was used in the uk and it's, it's you know it's even in so India. what is that it's, idea it's, exactly so the idea is basically commodification of welfare right and and uh, and the the claim being that the state is too large the state is too is 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 like a leviathan and it makes people parasitical upon it and so people refuse to work and they are happy to live on the dole those sorts of assumptions inform the new public management so this commodity the state need not provide every service directly let it be commodified now this is this has been insensitive notoriously insensitive and widely recognized as being insensitive to the inequalities that emanated from this okay so that there was this welfare state or and let me sort of paint it as a as some kind of an ideal type of a welfare state into <laughs> which you introduce principles of capitalism right. of the market and it didn't produce uh, uh you know the best results on the other hand do you, do you, do you think they are fundamentally in- incompatible no so on the other hand that's exactly what i'm trying to say they're not fundamentally incompatible because on the other hand you had um, you've had market societies fundamentally capitalist societies in which you have had uh, in a kalpulani kind of way double movement counter movement however we want to describe it economy and society people pushing back society pushing back women's movements peasant movements workers movements etc coming together mobilizing and through the exercise of their political agency uh, making a market economy more receptive to welfare claims so the whole scandinavian experience was about that that was how the welfare state in scandinavia was born through these movements but they right? you make the so you so you what i'm the... saying is that the capitalism and socialism the encounter takes a very different form in let's say blair's third way and right. and the uh, new public management but, including but in, Niraja, in that in that scenario but, you yeah. you make the welfare appeal to the market no what i'm saying is that one kind of confluence of these two opposites mm. uh 
led to, so where there was a welfare state and market principles were introduced, it led to inequalities. Right. And, uh, and, and uh, you know, those have persisted. On the other side, you had market societies into which, as a result of political mobilization, right. welfare principles were introduced and did much better. So what I'm trying to say at the end of this, these contrasting examples is basically the following, that I think we need to test these sorts of ideas of confluence of opposites in the social world against the idea of normatively desirable outcomes. Where if does the that outcomes come from? are not normatively desirable, well, where does uh, that come from? I mean, I think democracy and authoritarianism is—is—is is, is that a no-brainer? <laughs> so this this is very very close to my heart. I mean, a big part of what you know, the group that I mentioned earlier, we 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 have been pushing is the notion of social innovation, and that you know that we we, we especially now you know we embrace technological innovation, but the idea that we can actually experiment with and empirically think about better ways of organizing things socially is still something that is almost taboo. And and certainly for, you know, something like as an early modern historian, I, I I get very uncomfortable with the conflation of capitalism and markets, for example. Mm. Anybody who studied the history of, you know, the Indian Ocean before Vasco da Gama shows up, this, they're these were market societies long before capitalism existed. And in fact, one of the ways in which capitalism persists is precisely by conflating so what, the notion what, what, that markets what, is capitalism. What fair, is, what is, how, what's the distinction that you, I think you that, make? What is your definition of capitalism? So capitalism, at least from, the, from uh, the perspective of an early modern historian, especially someone who has looked at the trading company's rise in the 17th century, is, is really a a symbiotic relationship between private corporations that increasingly desire monopolistic power and the state. And it has long-term very bad effects on uh, democracy. And you're seeing it now. I mean, with the rising inequality, a lot of which you can, you can explain by increasing monopoly power in a variety of markets around the world, particularly technology, and the ways in which these, we, these companies then carry favor with the state you're seeing subversion of democracy. I mean, Facebook is a prime example, right, of this kind of monopolistic company that has set up cozy relationship with states essentially to use data as a way to subvert democratic outcomes. So that, to me, is sort of peak capitalism, right? Like these, these companies carry favor from states to protect their monopolies, and states essentially use these companies for their own purposes. Now, what strikes me as odd, Concord, is that, you know, I think Anirudh has rightly pointed out that natural and physical chemical systems that you're familiar with, or we were talking about, is different from the social. But somehow these social systems have a way of running away in this direction that seem normatively undesirable sometimes. But that doesn't seem to happen so much in in the, in the biological realm, right? So what, 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 what I mean, of course, there is cancer and this and that, and there are ways in which systems run away now actually the whole what world what your response to why it, it, whole it, it world doesn't is, seem to happen uh, has two opposite things basic opposite thing is selfishness another is sac sacrifice so some selfish people want to make a lot of profit by um, capitalistic method another is some people just sacrifice are there are there similar notions in in, in chemistry it, uh, actually or there in, is a in, uh, in biology there is a principle that they say that human genes are basically altruistic in nature that every gene every gene actually does something 
which will lead to a, some certain kind of loss of himself and but it will uh, make its uh, make product its much use. better yeah. and they say that this is good for generally in society also now the big capitalist and big free market uh, this theory of free market they say where is the market market is where there are a lot of people there is a lot of people so if we say that all all our scientific innovations and everything is for a small section of the people then the profit is not much and where is the biggest market in india the mobile phone how many people are using the maximum number everybody is no using. i think the question that's fine uh, konkan the question is that let's say in the systems that uh, you're more familiar with the physical chemical systems why isn't there this tendency to have such mass um, why why don't we have extremes there why is there the sense of balance why is there homeostasis why the uh, you use the word balance the extreme or? is not an equilibrium system when you go to one extreme you go either to total fascism that is very bad in sci- science also when i say in our body should not be too much acidic too much basic it should be certainly neutral in all our reactions we say that opposite forces should balance each other attraction of positive and negative should balance otherwise the protein will not have this active native structure which is biologically important so therefore we say that positive things are very good for running any natural machine any natural machine but um, whenever we deviate from this neutral so socially or scientifically neutral system that that is bad for the system Do you, you, yeah, the notion think, of equilibrium in Western philosophy, yeah. um, you know, you have two versions of this. Let's say the older version, going back to the pre-Socratics, uh, Heraclitus, and so on, is that exactly what you're saying: unification of opposites, unity of opposites. Through this idea. unity of opposites idea, um, through strife, opposites are brought together. But unity is desirable. Harmony, synthesis; these are. desirable so there there's a sense of balance this is it. i say, i guess there's a sense of balance uh, though that's not the term used but mm. uh, hegel for hegel uh, you know the absolute idea is the absolute truth the absolute unity uh, it overcomes the distinction between the subjective and the objective idea and and the expression of this absolute idea is the prussian state and you know this is hegel's famous line the state is the march of god on earth so right. presumably once that uh unification has occurred uh, that's that and that's the end of that story in marxism on the other hand which is the second tradition in which you do have a notion of ongoing conflict uh you know move, moving from one mode of production to another through thesis antithesis synthesis and dialectical materialism etc but even there um if one is pernickety one can detect a kind of telos mm. a kind of end of history right. when when that final stage of communism has been achieved and there's no further exploitation and no further contradictions between classes then there will be uh, you know in a, in a certain kind of perfection it's there in mao it's there in marx and engels it's it's there so in western philosophical traditions of these two very different kinds one a very conservative orientation the other a radical orientation in both uh recognizing to greater or lesser degree the idea of conflict uh you do have exactly this kind of argument about synthesizing about bringing opposites together so it's not an unfamiliar idea even in in But in social also, western philosophy yeah. there's also one more tradition which is the tradition of thinking about cosmopolitanism and that is also in some ways i mean there's a 
There's a wonderful story. Tolstoy rewrote it from this 18th century French traveler called the Coffee House of Surat, where, you know, he, he describes all of these different people from all over the Indian Ocean and they come and they have this big fight about the nature of God. And that turns into, you know, a kind of analogy of the nature of, um, you know, the sun. And eventually, basically... Sun as an S-U-N. S-U-N. So right. it's like this kind of uh, an sure. analogy with uh, navigation is made between these theological conflicts and then and navigation. And then this uh, confusion sort of uh, leads everybody to this cosmopolitan peace. And then a silence descends over this coffee house. And I've always found that story deeply troubling because all of the interesting tumult and debate and the intrigue of these different points of view mm. is all silenced in this very totalizing and a little bit frightening unity. And so this vision of cosmopolitanism is a vision that then actually destroys the very difference that it's supposed to celebrate. And I think that that is a very strong internal contradiction within Western philosophical traditions of thinking about difference and thinking about cosmopolitanism. And I think we live with the with the consequences of that very strongly. This notion that somehow, you know, living with true difference is impossible is something <laughs> that is, to me, a philosophical position that is frightening. Is there like in in how how is true difference retained in the systems you're familiar with does does the structure play a role because of you know acids bases yeah, positive actually, positive ions negative and they all coexist yeah um, we say that entire universe there is a harmony in entire universe when this in the entire solar system sun is attracting us but we are not going to sun we are not uh, just going and destroying ourselves by jumping into earth jumping into sun we are uh, following a regular orbit and the entire galaxy universe is is there as some kind of harmony among different opposite forces and the same kind of harmony should be present in earth also whenever a new scientific invention comes sometimes we initially get a very excited a car has come it has a lot of potential it will speed our life then sometimes later people say it creates a lot of pollution so we have to do something so even always there is a challenge we have created a new thing and that immediately creates new problem how to harmonize this whether we can still retain the car but not polluting people we can whether there is we have we, we talk about water shortage we talk about many many uh, environmental problem we say that you are sending lot of satellites what the, are what are the clues in uh, it's very difficult to answer this question what are the clues in in the biological world because i think you use the word harmony yeah, and balance bi- a few biological times biological world is like m- in a way the other way to ask, uh, ask this question is what are the kind of reactions that are disallowed you, like what does not happen because only what happens exists biological is the most economic reactions mm-hmm. we, in any you mean energetically you mean energetically everywhere we do not produce any waste product in all biological reactions the many of the our industrial thing is we produce something which is desired but along with that we produce lot of by products which are not good so many times we our um, scientists are saying that can we create a chemical like the way the tree creates a chemical mm-hmm. 
the tree cre- creation of tree is a slow process, but it does not pollute anything. Sometimes the tree creates creating poisonous elements, uh, poisonous things also, but it is not polluting the atmosphere around it. Whether our all our modern industries can be so what is special about the biological system? I think that's what we're trying to put a finger on. Why does it not produce... Um, the the reason why, is... Why are reactions economical? Because this is, all these biological processes are guided by enzymes. So enzyme, I said there is a lock and key system. So if, a, if something fits on one kind of template, it will produce only that which is, can be produced from that template. And that is your desired product. So somehow nature... So we, after, what, there's been evolution and some perfect evolution copies is, have been found yeah, that's, and they're replicating themselves. Yes, it's evol- as during that. evolution, nature has gradually improved its performance. So it has, it has known that this is the thing I want. So I will produce only this. And the question, Concord, is that even in biological systems, you know, it could happen in, within our bodies and otherwise. There could be new reactions. There could be new coming together, new kind of confluences of... Reaction that haven't bef- haven't happened before. What happens then? Yeah, actually, the pro- we have so far we have learned very little about the new reactions which happens in our body. We do not know. Maybe we know maybe one percent of the reactions which happen in our body. You see that the uh, a tree who takes sunlight, water, and carbon dioxide, they produce food. But can human being be able to produce their food in that such a way? Carbohydrate. There is oxygen. We say if, if you have carbon dioxide in the air, that is global warming. And I just take it can the the more the efficiently a tree produces a food which we eat. We no industry can do this. So our search is still on that when we will be as efficient as nature without creating any pollution, any loss of any uh, side product, we can do the reaction. So enter, there's a lot of things that are happening. And you would, attribute, you would attribute efficiency to just evolution over millions of years of things. Ev- yes, yes. The hum- this, our body took millions of evolution to make it perfect. Is this but, too lazy an argument to carry to our world? To say that, you know, I mean, obviously human beings have been around for a while. Societies have kind of grouped together in certain ways for how many ever, thousands of years. It's it's a process of evolution, and in the super long run, this would I I know you just made a few points about Hegel and Marx and so on, but in the super long run, do you see this tending towards a more efficient kind of state? You I know. See our the, heart. Our heart is pumping. If man man lives eighty years, the heart does not fail for a minute. Have you made any pump, any motor car, or anything, any television which does not fail for a second in eighty years? You see how super efficient our body machines are. Yeah, so I mean, I I think once again, I would um, emphasize the distinction between the natural world and the social world. I mean, I I think if you look at the history of democracy, and I'm not talking of from ancient Athens onwards, I'm just talking of the last couple of hundred years. uh, Why are we in the situation that we face today? But over 2000... democracy... No, I'm just saying a couple of hundred years. No, but I mean, my question to you is, let's say the notion is 2000 Mm. years old, let's go back to the early Greeks or whatever. Have some inefficiencies been taken off the table, whether in its... Uh, well, in the first place, I don't think the, the purpose of democracy is, is to, to produce efficiency. <laughs> sure. Right? So I, I, I think... Not produce efficiency, for the process to have some uh, aspects of efficiency, which is not the same as producing that's efficiency. Not but that's not the fine. motivation. Sure. Right? That's not the motivation behind democracy. Sure. Uh, but, but I think that the crises 
that democracy faces today in multiple countries across the world show that we haven't actually learned the lessons of the last hundred years. Mm. We haven't even learned the lessons of uh, of the fascist uh, sort of period of, of world history of yeah. uh, you know just reasonably recent past, reasonably yeah. recent past, and which is why today. Why you have a large number of books coming out right now, reminding us of about you know what forms tyranny takes, how tyranny uh, sort of insinuates itself into our political life today. So why is um, social memory so poor? Why is social memory so poor? No, I know we are not. Um, I mean, it's it's difficult to think of society as an organ like the heart or whatever. Right, one totally gets that, but. Um, I, I I share I mean, that that question has to be posed to the historian. <laughs> this is a very important question you have asked. Why social memory is poor? Because our lifetime is only sixty seventy years. Many people do not know exactly what happened in Hitler. Uh, but that's why books Hitler's exist and so on. In nineteen thirties, because <laughs> I was not present there. No, but that's but, why books exist. Social, that's like that's presumed. Yeah. Social yes. memory is a is a different thing. I mean, yeah, yeah the the. It, it it transcends generations, right? Yeah, and that course. is why we have social memory, we have archives, um, and why we have historians, I suppose. I mean, it's a, fun, yeah. it's a social function that yeah. societies have thought is important yeah. in order to safeguard ourselves. But I want to go back to Nirja's point about, you know, being careful about making um, leaps from natural to social um, systems you're in right our thinking. I mean, these analogies are dangerous they could be playing wrong well they're so, they're yeah. currently with us you know if yeah. you think about the notion of Gaia which started as a scientific idea right. as a kind of metaphor you know the biologist yeah, yeah. James Lovelock comes up with it as a way to kind of uh, alert us to the fact that this this earth that we occupy is not some inert stage in which you know man sort of plays out his uh, ordained civilizational fantasies but it's actually a, a living system. In, in which we as part of it can affect the system itself, right? It, what started as a metaphor has now kind of come into social thinking and in ways that I think can be quite dangerous. Because, for example, as um, someone who works on indigenous people um, in Brazil, I'm I'm really, really fascinated by the ways and say, the uh, ideas of Bruno Latour, who's drawing on these kinds of ideas, has rendered... Indigenous people, essentially, almost exactly the way that his ancestors in the 16th century rendered them as these kind of, you know, blank noble savages right. who, from whom now the Europeans should learn how to be Indians, right. as opposed to investing them with a full sense of their own humanity and, more importantly, their own politics. Right. And and that, to me, is this kind of very dangerous move that can happen with this kind of facile... Um, you know, leap of thinking from natural to social systems. And so the whole notion of social evolution kind of makes me extremely uncomfortable, no, especially when we consider the sort of eugenicist past that those kinds of ideas have, especially in this day and age where Fair those enough. ideas are coming back. Fair enough. Why, why don't you think of the social memory question? Is Do you, do you have an instinctive reaction to that? A, a lot. Um, well, I mean... Uh, Takes takes take where I work in Goa. Um, it's a small state. Um, it has some of the best kept archives in India, modern India today. They had some very 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 uh, 
uh, esteemed archivists who kept those records for us. Currently, much of the records are unusable because most there is not a single person in the state of Goa who can read Modi, which is a scribal Marathi script in which a large number of these records are written. A vanishingly few number can read Portuguese at all. And uh, there's nobody who can read, say, Halay Kannada. So we have lost skills. We have lost skills that we no longer value under this kind of English capitalist regime that we have pursued. And as a result, the repositories of our memory are no longer accessible. So there are very, very concrete reasons why things like social memory can, can be eroded. Um, and... And so it's not it's not some you know it's not some question in the air. It's it's also a question of political will. For example, as a historian, seeing the concerted assault by our own state on history, on changing historical textbooks, on defunding history as a discipline, and this is a clear political act of saying we don't want social memory. Because it is politically inconvenient. Because history is always written in the present, you know. And yeah. exactly, and you know, I mean, you know, you have historians being assassinated in India. Yeah. If that is not a sign that the political winds do not want social memories that are inconvenient to their particular narratives, I don't know what. I'm is. struck by what you said a little while ago, right? Loss of the script of Modi and others now. Again, in your world, stuff like this doesn't happen, right? I mean, are some enzymes just lost? They just vanish? Yeah. But, uh, we, 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 you know what we, I mean? Some languages, some skills, they just kind of go off charts for obviously very different set of reasons. We, and actually, we, there is a very, very serious uh, concern about biodiversity disappearing. Certain types of animals yes. are getting extinct. Which should be loss of certain kinds of enzymes and certain enzyme, kinds of... Enzymes, uh, certain so. kinds of... Um, uh, biodiversity includes everything. Enzymes, animals, plants different kinds of seeds. So there is a very serious worry. So that is kind of a place where in a way the social natural world kind of come together. Now obviously it's very different from the political world in some way. But, but at the, the good part is you have to see that unity in diversity is there in nature. No country now afford to say the authoritarianism is good, let us go back to Hitler's time. In casually many people say Hitler was a very good ruler. At that time economy in Germany flourished. And they don't care that Einstein and a lot of people had to f escape from Germany and half of the country was starving. So, th But that history also, though they are, uh, what Anunna is saying, they are trying to suppress that history, the torture, concentration camp and other things. But even the capitalists and fascists, they also know that we have to take along all these sections of the society. It's interesting the, how you say capitalists and faces, you're putting, it, putting them in the same bracket. It's a very, very difficult thing. Now China, China is the best capitalist country in the world. <laughs> you see that this is, this is absolutely true. And Bob Dylan is kind, kind of singing the same songs which the leftists were saying, <laughs> that everything, nothing is made in USA. We had a song that Mera Juta Hai Japani, and George, George, uh, Bob Dylan has the same song, Infidel. <laughs> it is sundown on Union, it is sundown on what is made in USA. So China has become the biggest socialist country. And yeah, previously, Asia, sent, Asia was out of the world. Europe was the main world. And little bit of America, and then America became the main thing. No, Europe for the Europeans, bit. yes, Europe was the main. Now, world. now yeah. the entire world has has become China and India, <laughs> and this Have is. You, I, I think the average economy is increasing. People are having food. 
and maybe some people are uh, uh, trying to fool us, but you see that every political leaders, what they are saying, if we come to power, we will give job. Ache din aega. So whoever has said ache din aega, but everybody wants an ache din. And people also know that if ache din does not come to every sections of the society, for all genders, all religion, all caste, then the country as a whole will not move. And nobody That's wants, no, That's nobody fine, wants that. Have you had a chance to think about this a little bit, Kong? Um, about this social memory question? No, I mean, I haven't really thought about it in any uh, sort of academic sense, except as a citizen. And I'm broadly in agreement with what has just been said by both Ananya and Konkan, which is that uh, that that regimes have a particular interest in uh, in selective appropriation of past memory, uh, which suits the political project of the moment. Um, whether this is true of all countries, I cannot say. Do you, do you um, see? New... I, I know that Germany, for instance, has been through this phase of feeling, uh, you know, being racked by guilt uh, for the Holocaust and so on. So there has been, so there are societies in which they have reflected on the past, much like at one stage of our history, of right. our intellectual history at any rate, the partition became uh, a big subject of scholarship and uh, of research. Uh, but one would have imagined that a broader social, uh, a, a sort of a, a broader section of society would have learned from the lessons of partition, even if none of us was around at the time that the partition happened, um, uh, even I wasn't. So uh, one would imagine that, you know, one as a society, we would have learned from those. That's mistakes. when it enters the cultural realm, but, right? But, yeah. but, but yeah. that's a very, yeah. that's a very, uh, there's a movie I teach when I teach the history of India. It's called Apna Desh. It came out in 1549 and it was uh, by V. Shantaram. It's mm. one of the only films that of his that, uh, that never get anthologized, is never talked about. And when it came out, uh, the Sri Lankan leader called it Apna Trash because mm. what it was about was about the way women were treated in partition right. and about the, you know, the kidnapping by the state and the complete abandonment by, by the state right. of women uh, who were returned. And after that, there were really, you know, Dharmaputra kind of, you know, tried to touch on partition, but there was pretty much just complete cultural silence on the partition. So if you look at our films, you know, there are vague allusions all the way. And it's not until the 1970s, or really the 1980s, that you start to see a conversation about partition even happening. Garmhava and so on, yes. So 20 years or more. So the entire partition generation lived in complete silence. And now, that is a country that is unwilling to face its past. Now, Ananya, these are obviously instances where, you know, something was kind of erased or an effort was made or there was silence for whatever reason and it germinates again. Are, are there many instances where it's, it's lost forever? There must be, right? It does. I mean, I mean, the thing is, what does, what does something being lost forever mean, right? I mean, so as long as there are historians and there are documents and there are archaeologists, I mean, we can recover past. The question is that the past that we recover, are they in any sense usable or speakable? And that's really a political question. That is not a question that as a historian I can answer. I mean, so I, I know what my methodology is and I know what rigorous scholarship within history looks like. And, that, and those are the standards by which I produce scholarship. What is made of that scholarship is an entirely political question. 
Now, over the long run, over the next 100, 200, 300 years, do you see new kinds of political orders emerging? I think climate change will <laughs> decide a lot of things. Yeah, I'm not yet seeing a debate even, uh, you know, even post-Piketty on capital, on in, on, uh, on capitalism, on inequality. Um, and uh, I mean, I, I think that debate is really not alive anymore in the way it was even a few years ago. And in, So it, I don't know, and I'm not seeing serious rethinking about democratic first principles either. Uh, so I don't know, but I, I mean, so I do what, worry what, about what, one thing. I do worry about sort of one thing, which in fact... Uh, uh, you know, would there be an opposition at some stage in the future and the not very distant future between human intelligence and artificial intelligence? And what implications and ramifications might that have for political life, for civic life, uh, for the civic community, for the polity? That 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 bothers me. But I don't know how to think about it. I don't have the tools to think about it. I really do encourage you to check out the work of Radical Exchange. But, but because as it's as very much I have something stuff. to say. Right. Because I say that science is never ending. Everything, new th theories come. But I think finally new orders will come. How? I do not know. And uh, I believe that philosophy, history and science are too important to be left only to the professional persons. I think scientists should com comment on history. Historians should comment on politics. And both political scientists and historians should comment what a scientist should do. Mm. And there is a old saying, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. So unless all the sections of the society are continuously debating, if I say I don't care about history, what happened in Hitler, I don't care. I am a scientist, I will have to publish some paper. That philosophy is not mm. correct. I mean, I If, think the tech industry is a classic example of what happens when you have technological innovation without any input from social scientists. So if you take something like facial recognition technology, The uh, Google AI um, ethicist, uh, Timnit Gabru, she has shown that, you know, that um, it, this is a technology that was made by largely white men. It is excellent at recognizing white male faces. For dark-skinned black women, the rate of recognition is essentially chance. Right. And so the... And you can see why, because you know, a bunch of white men sort of think about what's an efficient way for a machine to recognize something. They go with shadows. It doesn't right. occur to them that it's not the most mechanically efficient way of recognizing all types of faces. Now, the problem is that this technology is now being used by law enforcement and by authoritarian states around the world. And the consequences of misrecognition for already vulnerable populations like women, like black, black women, mm -hmm. is horrific. So the need for social scientists to be in the room with technologies is just absolutely apparent in our world now. But in deeper sense, you see that also the genetic scientists say that all human beings have almost a similar kind of gene. A black man and a white man and a woman and a man has, does not have very serious genomic differences. And finally, if it is of uh, this world as a whole, if they want a real confluence, only then the world will remain at equilibrium. Otherwise, if there is authoritarianism, that does not last for long. Hitler did not last for long. Only equilibrium situation is where all forces will balance each other. And that for that, everybody will have to work together. Scientists, philosophers, historians, and also this, all these movie makers and literature 
literature music makers everybody because do you do you agree that authoritarianism doesn't last long now of course i mean it's it hard to say isn't it i mean one hopes it doesn't but one doesn't know what the precise dynamics of particular phases of authoritarianism uh, might be what the social and political context of a particular form of authoritarianism because authoritarianism is. is also learning right yeah but authoritarian is uh, authoritarian regimes will differ widely depending upon where they're located what kind of society they are embedded in and so on so there will be differences uh no i think why don't we end this with this question what's the future where do you think with all this is all headed I don't know where it is headed but I know where it should not be headed. I do not think the search at least in the social world needs to be about equilibrium and balance. I think it needs to be providing making a better future for human societies, one that is in consonance with nature uh, and is not destructive of nature, one that is equitable and fair to all segments of society, classes, genders, etc. uh you know, I I think an equilibrium is not necessarily what we need to search for ananya i very much believe that you know we we are we are in a phase where we need to innovate socially you know i mean if you think about some, even an institution like the nation state it it is old now and it, and it is clearly not working in the context of massive climate change of human migration uh, that is being driven by that collective action is difficult and so collective on. action is really is really national nationalism is not a particularly good institution for our context so then the question becomes and what so we, what change is it a very big crisis realization of a super well, big I, crisis i think it already is in crisis i mean i think a lot of what we're seeing is the nation in crisis because it is not a good institution for facing our current challenges and so i think where we're heading is because i'm basically an optimist is i think that we are entering a critical phase but a phase where genuine innovation in social life has to be something that we're willing to countenance and i think for our generation and the students that i teach that is something that they really are willing to play with because they see how poor the current status quo is we'll try to end with you konkan uh, i am a die hard optimist i have infinite expectations about human power and i think there are momentary aberrations in our country and many countries but finally we will all overcome and there is a very famous uh, saying of tagore he said that the utmost sin is to lose faith on human being so i do not lose hope and i think finally we will work together enter that famous song or imagine there is no country and there is no nation do you think do you think uh, konkan is too optimistic neeraj uh, i hope he's I, right i know your normative desire i can desire. only hope he's right what do you I don't think see, i don't see the seeds or the green shoots of that process yet but i hope they will emerge Okay. I mean Let's... I'm happy to share the optimism. I just don't know what the basis of that optimism is right now. It's not apparent to me. The human beings, that's the basis. Yeah. But, okay. but human beings who have uh you know whose whose minds have had an opportunity to learn uh you know part of the problems that we've been discussing all this time the crisis of democracy, the crisis of the nation state and all of this is is partly that. 
well, I think on that somber, maybe optimistic note, thanks to all of you for making it, and we look forward to having you soon again. Thank you for coming. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you very much.